Hey, zombie lovers. Uh, welcome to Hey, All You Zombies. I'm Richard Krauss on this end of the line over there. My cohort, Chris Abel. Uh, and you've uh, stumbled across a podcast where we talk, we chat about things that, that, that uh, I, I wish I could say there was a through line. I wish I could tell you that we talked about zombies every week or that we talked about wrestling every week, or we, but we just, we just don't. We sort of talk about whatever grabs our attention in the moment that we're sitting here talking. So um, it, it, it's not consistent, but it's uh, it's a lot of fun, I think. Well, I think it, it's consistent in that it's uh, unusual topics. So mm -hmm. it's not the it's not the normal kind of thing that you might find on the television, the news, or the radio. This is representative of the internet culture, which can go anywhere. Yeah, yeah, we will. <laughs> yeah. We will tell you uh, things you won't see in mainstream, and then you think you're going to be on, you know, tuning into Fox News uh, on the internet. It's not quite that either. But we weren't here last week, and that was my fault. I was in uh, Los Angeles at D23, uh, which is I had never, I, I, you know, sort of full disclosure, I had never heard of D23. They've only done two of them in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a sort of a, a biannual event. Uh, so every couple of years, they Disney. Uh, throws uh, essentially a Comic-Con, but all Disney all the time. And uh, this was big. This was in Anaheim, so next door to Disneyland. And I don't know how many people attended, but I know that in one of the presentations that I went to, this is just one event out of 200 that were happening, and I mean literally 200 events that were swirling around all the time. This one event drew over 5,000 people, and it was John Lasseter uh, announcing what the animation slate would be for Pixar, Disney Animation, Disney Tunes, and, you know, all the imprints that they have. And it was three and a half hours long, which might have been just a little bit on the long side, unless you're a Disney fan. And I'll tell you, the people, I, I was really uh, interested in the crowd that went to this because, you know, I was staying in a hotel right next door to this big convention, the Anaheim Convention Center where uh, Red Skelton apparently used to do shows. Which oh, cool. is and on the days that he would do shows to uh, drum up interest in you know getting people to come in, he'd work the box office as well and sell people tickets. Pretty cool. So anyway, I was, I was sitting next door, so I would leave my hotel and go down, and there would be you know thousands, literally thousands of people standing in line to get in. And every second person was dressed as Snow White, or a Disney princess. There were so many various ears of Mickey ears. I can't even begin to tell you how many Mickey ears I saw. Um, but some of the interesting ones were clearly uh, homemade. One guy had uh, Mickey ears that spun around, like just twirled. Oh, like, wow. And um, there were uh, Mickey ears that looked like they were from the movie Tron, you know, so just a high-tech kind of version of them. Uh, there was one family standing in this giant lineup that had uh, the little girl, uh, which I'm guessing I'm guessing it was you know daughter slash granddaughter, mom, and then grandpa, you know. Mm -hmm. And so the little girl, and she is dressed as a princess, just frilly princessy thing with little ears on. And then the mother was uh, dressed with Mickey Mouse ears and and some you know a Mickey Mouse shirt, that kind of thing. But the grandfather, who you know. How old could he be? 65, 70 years old. Uh, is dressed in camouflage wear, but he's wearing like a military hat with camouflage mouse ears on it. It was quite oh. something. So there was a lot of that, you know, just a lot, and, and loads of Star Wars stuff because, of course, Disney now owns Star Wars. Uh, although 
And before you ask me, because everyone else has been asking me, there were no announcements about Star Wars at this thing. I That's one of the reasons I went. I thought that they'd be saying, okay, here's the cast, here's that. That didn't happen. Uh, but tons of people dressed as, as uh, characters from Star Wars, lots of lightsabers, all that sort of stuff. Uh, then you go in, there's tons of stuff going on. I mean, there's just, there's, there's art exhibits, there's all sorts of interesting, crazy things happening all around. Uh, and, um, you know, you get, uh, if you have one of these, the press, uh, the, the, this is your three-day ticket, or better yet, if you have one of these, the yeah. press pass, uh, you can pretty much stroll around and kind of go wherever you like. And uh, so I saw a lot of that stuff. I saw a lot of cool things that way. But the presentations were really quite something. I mean, nobody does these things quite like Disney. And um, they are massive on scale. These, This one that I was, you know, 4,500 or 5,000 people uh, in a room to watch clips from a movie and have John Lasseter bring out the directors who would then tell you a little bit about it. And, I mean, it's sort of essentially like, you know, a big corporation uh, the, the kind of, of, of uh, presentation that big corporations do quite often when they're launching a new product or something. You've been to them, I've been to them. But Disney does them in a way that, you know, is sort of fairly unique. I mean, not only do they have the actors, so, uh, you know, there's uh, Disney Tunes, which is the division that, generally speaking, does the direct-to-DVD and, you know, that kind of thing. So a lot of sequels come out of there. Uh, they have a movie coming out. Uh, called Pirate Fairy uh, with uh, Christina Hendricks and Tom Hiddleston, who everyone is talking about right now because he plays Loki in the Thor movies. And they bring them out. They have them there, and they bring them out. Angelina Jolie came out because she's – this was on the second day, another presentation, uh, because she's playing the Wicked Witch or the, the Evil Stepmother in uh, Maleficent, I believe it's called. It's a movie – there's a thing. It's her name. It's the in Cinderella. It's the the or Sleeping Beauty rather. It is the evil uh, witch's name. I can never remember how to say it, and I think that might be a problem. They might want to just call it the Wicked Witch or something. Because I don't. Anyway, Angelina Jolie looks amazing in this character as this character. She's got big horns and she's very intense. And she told a very funny story about how. You know, she's always been a Disney fan, and when she finally got the offer to do this, she thought, oh, this is amazing. I'm going to be playing a Disney character. And, you know, kids would come to the set, and she'd be like, oh, I love kids. And she would go to talk to them, forgetting. You know, she was thinking, well, I'm a Disney character. Well, she's a Disney character with big horns and kind of evil. And these, uh, she said, you know, one four-year-old uh, boy kind of freaked out and said, please tell the lady to get away from me. So I think it was kind of funny. But, um, uh, but the, the big thing, so... The, the first day on the Friday, they did a three-and-a-half-hour-long presentation. And at the end of it, they've got a movie coming out called Frozen. And it's got a song in it called Let It Go. And it's the big kind of showstopper, written by the same people that wrote the music for Book of Mormon and a lot of things. And so they have Indina Menzel, who was on Broadway, starring in the show Wicked. She's the voice of the character that sings in the movie. So they bring her out. She sings it live on stage. And then you realize... There's, there's uh, icicles and, and snowflakes being projected on the walls around you. And you think, wow, this is really beautiful. And then it starts to snow inside. And it says, and that's Disney. That's what they do that nobody else does. They just do these big, large-scale uh, presentations really, really well. And it was, cool. uh, it was a lot of fun to see. Oh, that sounds fantastic. And it, it's, you know, sometimes the, the companies that we go to these events, they'll, they'll try to deliver something a little bit more elaborate. But it's yeah. very rare. So it's nice to see that Disney's doing. Uh, you know, in the video game industry, 
companies like Microsoft or Sony used to do that, say, eight years ago, nine years ago, but they've kind of scaled back. Uh, well, I'm sure it's very expensive. You know, I'm sure it's very expensive, and, and you know, uh, Disney likes to do everything with a big boom, you know, like they like to make a splash, and listen, they've got a lot of stuff coming out. I mean, there's, we, I, I sat through two days of presentations, plus seeing, you know, lots of other things, too, but the, in these two days of presentations, they presented Man, I don't even know how many movies, 20, 25 movies or something that they have coming out. And not just, you know, little direct-to-DVD things. I mean, huge movies starring big stars. Anthony Hopkins was there to promote a movie. They've got uh, Tom Hanks and Emma Thompson coming out and Saving Mr. Banks, which is the actual story of Walt Disney, the real Walt Disney, played by Tom Hanks in the movie, courting the writer of Peter Pan, who didn't really want to give up the rights uh, to Peter Pan. And uh, the clips from that looked really, really interesting. And, you know, I have to say, uh, it was it was uh, worth the trip to Anaheim uh, to have a look at, at all this stuff. And just to, you know, more importantly for me, because I suppose if I poke around online, I can find trailers for most of the movies that they show. I mean, I could have had a look at them. I wouldn't have had it snow in, indoors, probably, but, you know, I could do that. But it was really cool to see the crowd. And... Uh, you know, to just see how connected people are to these characters and, and uh, how much they enjoy the whole world that Disney has created. It really is something to see. And, you know, to see it en masse like that. I've never been to Disneyland or Disney World. I'm not really a theme park kind of guy. Uh, but uh, this convention uh, showed me, uh, at least in a microcosm, what it would be like to live in the world of Disney for a little while. Well, and it's nice to know that they still have that impact. Uh, for a while, you know, I think one of the issues with something like Disney or any kind of large company or entertainment company like that is after a while it just becomes a marketing brand. And right. it's hard to feel like it has the storytelling magic that it might have had in the yesteryear. So when you have a large event like this and you can see all the crowds coming out there and you can see the the effort being made by the studio to try to to deliver something that's a little bit more than just here's our next product or here's our next sequel or our next tie-in or that we're going to leverage things that are all familiar. They're coming up with a whole slate of, of stuff that sounds completely new. Uh, that's good. That's exciting. Well, it was interesting because uh, I will be writing uh, in November. It's going to run in November. I did an, a lot of interviews while I was there with people. And uh, I'm writing a story on uh, the Disney brand and, you know, how it's changed over the years. Because there was a point where it was Walt who was kind of the creative force behind everything, and and it trickled down from him, and, and Walt had the final say on things, and uh, then he had people working with him that he trusted very much, but everything had to go through Walt. And then it changed, and then it became, I think, probably just like big companies do, you know, it became uh, a much more... Uh, executive-driven, like businessmen, started running a company that had been run by a creative visionary. And now it seems to be going back the other way, and the creative decisions seem to be being made by the people who should be making them. The creatives are actually far more involved in a lot of this uh, than, than you might have imagined. And John Lasseter in particular, now he was you know, best known for um, you know, his work with Pixar, He's best known for his work with Pixar. Uh, something weird happened there. You, you froze. I seem to have now been signed in twice. I'm not sure what's going on there. Uh, you look at the bottom. It seems yeah. to think that I'm. I've. I've just joined the. the, the <laughs> oh, Google, lovely technology. Yeah, you're getting uh, two for the price. Two Chris Abels for the price of one. 
Uh, but, uh, you know, John Lasseter is now the chief creative officer. And, you know, I guess, I guess he's like the new Walt. You know, everything gets run past him. And it was very interesting uh, to hear people talk about him, to hear the directors and people that he, that he works with in a, in a very direct way. Um, there, I saw a movie called Get a, uh, Get a Horse. And Get a Horse is uh, a new uh, Disney short that uh, mixes old-school Mickey Mouse animation with some new technology. And I'm not going to tell you any more about it than this because it really has to be seen to be believed, and I don't want to spoil it for anybody. But one of the things that they did in this movie is they, they found old recordings of Walt Disney voicing the Mickey Mouse character, and they, they repurposed them for this for this movie. But they needed, uh, at one point, for him to say the word red, R-E-D, red. Right. And they just couldn't find it anywhere. So they hired someone uh, to do a sound-alike, and they, the person came in and apparently nailed it, just like pinned it to the wall, just, you know, said it perfectly. They added in, and uh, Lasseter is sitting back watching the thing, and he goes, you know what, this is, this is genius. I just have one question. What's up with the word red? Because it doesn't match anything else that's in the movie. And they're like, how does he know? And just some, you know, he's so attuned to everything, to the things that, that are uh, part of, you know, that he sees on screen, that he was able to pick it up. So what they ended up doing in the final movie, it's actually Walt saying it, but it's Walt saying R and then E and then D, and somehow they've put it together so that it forms the word red uh, but not uh, he, he never actually voiced that word. They had to create it. But it is now, in fact, voice, uh, Walt's voice. So it was, it, it was, it was, it's very interesting. And, you know, uh, director after director told me that uh, Lasseter's input is invaluable because he just has an eye uh, not only for the visual, but he understands stories so well. And I will tell you, you know, you watch uh, virtually any Pixar movie, particularly my favorites like Up and Wally, -E, and you place those up against uh, newer animated films like Turbo or something uh, of that ilk. And Turbo, you know, was in theaters a few weeks ago. It's not a not a horrible movie, uh, but uh, it's beautifully animated. But the story just isn't all that compelling. And as you watch it, you yeah, I, I and I can't help it. And I know it's not fair to compare things. You're not supposed to compare your kids. You know, you know all that stuff. But I, I watch a movie like Turbo, and I go, you know, it's just too damn bad that Pixar didn't make this because they would have figured out how to tell this story properly. And you know, he's he's the guy. He's the guy that does it. And so. Uh, the story that I'm writing about the Disney brand will be about how it seems to have uh, fallen back into the hands of the creatives. Right. Uh, I mean, it's it's. I think it's fantastic when you can have someone who has that artistic sensibility that they can filter in all sorts of content and kind of you know pick out what's right, what's wrong. It's hard because not many companies have that kind of thing. I think you know you had that with Apple with Steve Jobs. Uh, obviously, the original Walt Disney. You see that with, with very specific film directors. I mean, Quentin Tarantino. People often ask, "What is it about him that makes him so exceptional?" It's, he has that same that filter, that sensibility that he can take a look at things and realize that that's going to work and that's not. Other people sort of take chances too. I mean, Tarantino yeah. takes. You know, people say, "Oh, you know, he just copies scenes from other movies and stuff." Well, no, he doesn't. And he takes chances with things that shouldn't work, 
but somehow do. Like in in uh, Django, the the giant tooth on top of of uh, Christoph Waltz's uh, dentistry van. It's ridiculous. It shouldn't work. Or the giant pipe that Christoph Waltz smokes in Inglorious Bastards. She, I mean, you should just go, oh, come on, that's just stupid. But for some reason, uh, you know, his instincts are right on, and it does work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's what you're getting from guys like Lasseter as well. Um, it's interesting. One of the things I wanted to talk about was the uh, Disney just, in addition to everything that you mentioned, all the movies, they've launched new apps. Uh, they've launched a new game that's coming out today called Disney Infinity, which, again, only came out because John Lasseter apparently looked at the project and gave uh, a thumbs up to it. And the contention was that this game is sort of the first Disney property, if you will, that mixes the characters from the different universes. Right, right. So you have the Pixar characters playing alongside the Disney characters. Right. Playing alongside the live action characters, Johnny Depp from Pirates of the Caribbean, and including things like the uh, television division. So they have, you know, uh, TV series called Phineas and Ferb, and those characters are involved as well. And, you and can apparently, it took a, well. yeah, and it took a long time to try to convince Lassiter that that's something that was worthwhile. That it wasn't going to be just, hey, you know, here's all these brands, we mix them up together, we can make so much more money. That it had to be something that was very imaginative and creative. And the guys that are designing it, to me, are, they seem like Pixar guys. I got to interview them when they did um, a game called Toy Story 3, right. which is misleading because it sounds like it's just Toy Story 3, but they had come at it and said, no, 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 rather than just do what most people do, which is this is the, the, the story from the movie is now a video game. Right. Everybody wants to, um, especially when you're kids, you want to reenact the movie. You go home after watching Star Wars, and all your kids play it on the, the backyard. In video games, they go home and just play it as a video game. And uh, Disney, uh, these guys came in and said, no, we want to create a playground where kids can use their imagination and invent their own kind of systems. Right. And that has been what has sort of won them great acclaim from the guy gang over at Pixar because that's exactly up their alley. So in the, the original Toy Story 3 game, for example, they brought in kids to try out the game very early on. And even though they had, as adults, set down, here's your quest, you need to go to point A, you need to go to point B, the kids were ignoring that because they had designed it to be so open and free. They had large sections where kids could do whatever they want. The kids were doing things that nobody had ever anticipated. There was one boy that really proved to be important to them because all he would do is he would go over with his character and pick up a cow. They had these cows that were just on springs that would go back and forth, like the, the tooth you mentioned. <laughs> and uh, all he wanted to do was to climb these virtual mountains, which would take you about three to four minutes to get to the top, just so he could throw the cows off the mountain and watch them go bouncing down. And he would just do this over and over and over again. And they realized then that mischief had to be a part of the, the component of the game, the component of play. So Disney Infinity does this, and in that it brings all those worlds together. You can be Sully from Monsters Incorporated and go over and try to scare Johnny Depp. You can be the Lone Ranger, all those kinds of things. And then they incorporate lots of mischief. So I was playing Disney Infinity last week at, at the event they had here in Toronto, playing it with little kids. I don't get to play with kids too often. Parents are watching. I always try to let people know that when I say I was playing with a bunch of little girls, 
So no, their parents were nearby. That's but good. a lot of it was just at these events, the kids don't know each other, and I find that kids often end up sitting by themselves. And so I go and sit next to them, and inevitably they want me to kind of play with them. And we had a lot of fun because they had all sorts of wacky stuff. My favorite is they have a toilet paper gun. Yeah. And so it's a gun that shoots rolls of toilet paper that bounces off of people's heads, and then if you hit a, a like a, a hill, it just rolls down and leaves little trails of paper, to, uh, paper, toilet paper everywhere it goes. I mean, insane kind of stuff like that. But the reason that John Lasseter agreed to the game was that kids can be as creative as you want to be. So you can actually create your own games like you would in a backyard scenario. You don't have to follow the rules. Uh, for example, there was one girl, all, all she wanted to do was just pick me up and throw me off a bridge. Uh, that just entertained her constantly, but it drove her mother just crazy. So I came to her and I said, you know, there's a swimming pool that you can bring into existence. You go through a menu, find all sorts of stuff, and boom, we have a swimming pool. Uh, and if you jump in the swimming pool, the water splashes. And so I showed her how you could go into the menu and build bricks. And if you just stack the bricks on top, you could eventually climb up and then jump off and try to aim and land into the swimming pool. It's got that dynamic that you can kind of invent whatever little game you want to play. So we had a competition over who could do cannonballs and, and that kind of stuff. Wow. It's very creative. My problem with it, though, and this is something I'm, I'm now facing when I take a look at anything that's family-oriented, is that I'm finding, especially with apps, they all have a scheme for making money. And it's starting to bother me. And right. especially it bothers me when it comes from things like Walt Disney. There was an app recently from the Jim Henson Company that kind of does this. So in Disney Infinity, there's, there's the game that you can buy. It's the disc you bring home, you put in your system. But to unlock characters in that game. So you sit down, you, you want to be Mr. Incredible, you want to be uh, Phineas Ferb, any of those. You have to go to the store and buy the buy toy that. for that yeah. character. Yeah, right, right. Otherwise, you can't play him. So this is um, Randall from Monsters, Inc. The only way you can play Randall is if you go to the store, and I think it's it's $13 to buy Randall. Right. And then you come home, and you connect that to your system, and now you have Randall in the game. And so here you are starting off with something that starts off as $80, and then it's $13 for each character, and there's 17 right. characters, and then all that kind of stuff. And it yeah. kind of drives me crazy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, it gets expensive. I guess that's what eBay is for. I don't know. I, you know, I, I don't know. Because I, I saw that weeks ago. Um, I did an interview with the guy from uh, the guy who played uh, the Lone Ranger's brother, um, and uh, it was a little Disney-sponsored press day, and they had the setup there. And I was kind of messing around with it. I wasn't playing the game so much, but I just liked how you could take that little avatar you have, place it on the machine, and then it pops up on the screen, and it was cool to have them interact. So I wasn't really playing it. I was just sort of messing around with it, but it was pretty cool. Yeah, it is it's pretty cool. cool. I mean, the technology that they use is is, uh, is pretty ingenious. And it's very cool. Uh, I love the fact that, you know, with Lasseter in charge, they're now directing themselves towards things that are a little bit more healthy, so, you know, yes, instead of just cashing in on the, the brands, they are creating an online playground where kids, just like they would in the streets, just like they would in the backyards, can sort of invent their own games. They can create new versions of Tag, but doing so with video game-style ingredients. So imagine if, you know, how much fun it would be if you were a kid to go out in the backyard and everybody had go-karts. Right. Well, in a video game world, that's exactly what you could do, right. or jetpacks or hoverboards. Uh, so it's something that I'm very 
taken with. I, I, it's also very ambitious in the sense that they are going to release an iPad app, so you can actually design stuff on your iPad and then send that to the game system for your kids to play. Wow. So you can create a racetrack and say, okay, kids go off and now you get a little racetrack to do, or I'll make a swing set for you, or, you know, and that, that speaks to me directly from sort of that Pixar sensibility. But then you get, you know, the corporate side, which is, you know, we're going to make as many little widgets and try to get parents to, to buy them all as, as much as we can. Yeah, I mean, you know, in terms of just the technology, uh, one of the other uh, things that I went to, I went, so I was in Anaheim for a few days, and then I went to Los Angeles and, and moved, you know, my base of operations, meaning I took my iPad to Los Angeles and checked into a different hotel. And I went to uh, the Disney Animation Studios in Burbank, and I spent uh, some time there uh, just tooling around, interviewing people, seeing more clips from movies. I got to see uh, Get a Horse again. I saw it once with 5,000 people, and then I got to see it in a very small screening room, the one that Lasseter uses, and uh, it's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool little screening room, and you get to see, you know, it's state-of-the-art, and it was very nice. Um, but one of the things that they showed me, which was very cool, uh, we met all the people that are developing the software that drives a lot of the new animated films that they're making. So they have a movie coming out called Frozen. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's based on the Hans Christian Andersen story. And there are two sisters, like it's, a, I guess, two princesses, you know, the Disney princess. There's two of them. And one, everything that she touches freezes. It's just her, it, it's, it's, it's her cruel fate. And uh, and so later, when she becomes, uh, uh, I guess when she becomes comfortable with this whole thing, when she does this, ice sparkles come off her hands and they leave these trails in the air and stuff. And they're really cool on film. They're really cool looking. Uh, but apparently they just took forever to figure out a couple of things. How does snow move? How do you animate snow? So when someone's walking and leaving imprints, that it looks like real imprints in snow. Or, you know, when you kick snow a little bit and it rolls and makes a little snowball. How do you do that so it all looks real? So I met the guys and figure all that out on their computers. And they do very elaborate um, uh, um, uh, research trips. They went to the Ice Hotel in Quebec. They went to Norway. They do all sorts of things to have a look at things to see how it's going because there's not a lot of snow in Southern California. Yeah. And so <laughs> and so they do all this. But they they one of the things that they're working on, and not a lot of this technology actually made it what they call to frame uh, in this picture, but it, it likely will in subsequent movies. They They are creating technology that exists in the real world that controls things that don't exist in the real world. And so one of the things they, they did, and I held it, it's like a huge camera, this big steady cam camera that I put on my, my uh, arm, and there was a big screen in front of us. And on the camera, there's another little screen, and you see a little town. You see a few houses from a town. And the guy said, move it around anywhere you want. And I could move it up. And there would be the sky, there would be mountains, I'd put it down, there's the road, turn around. There's, and they had created full 360 in every direction of this town. And I was controlling it with something that exists in the real world, this camera, and sort of having a look at something that doesn't exist anywhere. It's pixels, it's binary code, it's, it doesn't really exist. But it was very cool. And they have another wand that you use, and you stand, you've got 
a lot of different cameras on you, and you stand in front of a screen, and you do this, and it leaves sparkle trails all around you on film, but not in the real And so, again, it's one of those things. They've created something that inter something real that interacts with something that isn't real and creates these, this beautiful art. And it's it was really cool. And, and I, to be honest, at the beginning of that presentation, I kind of thought, oh, God, here we go. We're going to hear about, <laughs> you know, uh, and <laughs> we're going to hear about a lot of programming stuff that I'm not going to understand. But the enthusiasm of these guys won me over in a very big way. And it was really, it was very, it was fascinating to see uh, all this equipment that they were working on that may or may not ever really come to fruition. I mean, this may never be used, or it may be the next big thing. Who knows? But they're they're allowed to explore and play and figure things out as they go. Yeah, I, I'm always envious of companies that um, they write into the, the, the culture that every employee is going to have 10 or 15% or of just experimentation. Right. That it's not always try to get the job done in the quickest amount of time for the least amount of money, but the understanding that if you allow a little bit of tolerance for people yeah. to go off and try to, to, to play a little bit and try certain things out, that you end up discovering things which may in the long run save even more money. Uh, maybe save even more time. I mean, what you described, the advantage there, which may be hard for people to understand, is that if you're trying to create an animated film, you're always starting off with essentially a fixed perspective that's in your mind. But if you're just shooting a movie, guys like Quentin Tarantino can show up and stand in the middle of a, a made set and then decide, hmm, I'll, you know, I'll point my camera this way, I'll yeah. point my camera that way. All they're trying to do is give directors that same kind of dynamic of standing in the animated world and then, then trying to figure out where, I guess, to, to point their camera. That must be a very useful tool, and it's the kind of thing that can make a difference between Wall-E and, yeah. and those other new movies that you just yeah. mentioned, you know? Well, I'll tell you, it's really cool. I mean, that technology, that camera, I mean... I don't know. It's, we're talking tens of thousands of dollars here. It's big. It's, it's, it's long. It doesn't weigh anything, but it's about this big. But you could literally do anything with it. And every time uh, you moved it, it was like you were panning across a, a huge vista, a huge landscape that just that, that wasn't there, that doesn't exist. But it did on screen, and it did on this tiny little monitor that I had attached to the camera. It was... Uh, that was a cool experience. I, I, uh, I was glad to have seen that, even though, I mean, listen, I don't understand... How I stopped understanding after you said we're making something in the real world that controls something that's not real, and after that it was all you know pops and buzzes to me. But it was really cool to see. <laughs> yeah, um, well, I'm surprised that some of the things that you've spoken about were you know there they are they've got their D23 event and that's when this stuff is making its debut. But a lot of things were actually released at the exact same time. So I was shocked that um, Disney Animated, which was an iPad app released last week before D23 started, has an entire section on the movie Frozen, wow. has the trailer in it. There's even a section where you can try creating your own snow, like that yeah. wand, but you're using your finger across the screen. So I, I was kind of like, wow, you know, I can't believe they already had that to market at the same time that they're sort of debuting it as something being new. Uh, I don't know of other companies that do that. Well, no one works like Disney. No one, I don't think, uh, has the whole picture. I, I, I think that the reason that they are Disney, the reason that they are such a worldwide brand, that Mickey Mouse is one of the most recognizable characters uh, worldwide, uh, you know, that they just that they are Disney, 
is that they they regard every facet of what they do as being equally important. So the movies have got to be great. And so they've got people that are going to make the movies great. But they also have a marketing department that's working very closely with the filmmakers, that's working very closely with the, you know, with the theater distributors to make sure that the movie will, you know, uh, you know, play on the right screens and the, whatever it is. But they, they are integrated completely from top to bottom. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it's something they've been around for almost 100 years. I guess that's where you, you know, you figure that out over time. Uh, but it, it is uh, it's quite something when you see it all mesh. And I think you will see that Frozen opens in November. And uh, you're going to hear and see an awful – there will be no one on the planet that doesn't know that Frozen is opening. Whether they go or not is another thing, but everyone will know. Everyone will have the an equal chance to see this movie. Yeah, it looks really cool. It looks good. It does look cool. And, you know, a, a lot of the stuff now, uh, you know, I was seeing extended clips. I was seeing, uh, you know, montages and that sort of thing. I wasn't seeing full movies. Um, I was seeing enough so that I could speak to the directors about the movies. No reviews uh, uh, at this point. And uh, I'll tell you, a lot of the stuff looked really cool. A lot of stuff looked really cool. It looked like there's some really great stuff coming. Now, who knows? You know, I mean, I haven't seen the entire movies yet. Who knows how they all hold together? But so far, things look pretty good. And uh, Saving Mr. Banks, which is the Walt Disney Mary Poppins story, uh, looks like a lot of fun to me. So I'm, I'm, I'm a sucker for old Hollywood stories anyway. So uh, to see it brought to life like that, I'm looking forward to it. Well, I want to ask you about um, drive-in movie theaters. I don't know how much you, um, whether how how many times you may have gone to one or or what your thoughts may be on it. But the reason I wanted to mention it was, let me see if I'll pull up my little screen share here, is because down in the United States, and you've probably heard of this, maybe not, there is this uh, campaign called Project Drive-In. Right. It's being done by Honda, the automotive maker of all all companies. And it's an effort to try to save the drive-in movie theater. There's about uh, 300 of them in the United States. I'm guessing there's probably about 30 here in Canada. Yeah. Uh, and they've all little mom-and-pop businesses that have been kind of holding on over the decades. But this year is going to be a, a hard year for them because all the studios are saying they're no longer going to distribute celluloid prints to them. If they want new titles, that they're going to have to change over to digital projection. Well, I mean, I, I've heard this. Uh, also, another thing that's that's killing drive-ins is that you require a huge amount of space for a drive-in uh, to, you know, to have enough people in the audience to make it worthwhile to, you know, stay open. You got to have room for 150 cars, and you know, that's that's a lot of space that, that taken up. And it was in the 50s, you know, that if you remember, drive-ins. We're never in the middle of town. Drive-ins were always on the outskirts of town. You drove to them, you you know, and and uh, um, they were you know in old farmers' fields that were taken over and that sort of thing. Well, now as we've expanded and cities have gotten bigger and towns have gotten bigger, all that space is now used with you know it's developed, and so the drive-ins were sort of being driven out uh, uh, because the land is more valuable as. Um, you know, a space for a new warehouse or a factory or houses or something that it is as a drive-in. And so that's been another thing that's been really kind of unfortunate. Well, it's interesting what Honda's doing here is they are 
they're going to donate five digital projection systems to drive-ins down in the United States. They've also set up an Indiegogo campaign to try to raise funds uh, to get others. And they've partnered with Sony Pictures to do a pop-up theater tour across the United States. So areas where there are no longer a drive-in movie theater, they will actually come in and create an outdoor theater system that's temporary just to try to get people excited about it. Uh, I haven't been to one in a long time, but I have recently been speaking to a few people because it's been kind of this resurgence, this interest in, in checking this stuff out. Much like you have couples who are getting into board games or bowling, there is uh, an interest now in trying to go back to the retro activities of the 50s and the 60s, and drive-ins are kind of part of that. But a lot of people who have been to them were mentioning advantages that I never even thought of. Like, you know, when you go there, they often have now restaurants that serve elaborate plates full of food. A movie theater, you're pretty much restricted to snacks and popcorn, maybe a hot dog. But at a drive-in, you can get poutine. You can get waffles. You can get the very sticky, messy food that normally would not be welcome. Right. Uh, in a That's right. <laughs> Yeah, because the inside of your car can get sticky. You're not wiping it all over the seats or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or you have people that bring their lawn chair furniture and they get out of the car and they kind of set up their own. It's kind of like you know the tailgate community that you get at, uh, at at Daytona racing and things like that. But it also, you know, I was thinking about it and realizing that maybe drive-ins just have a problem in that they need to be updated for the modern times and that there could be a lot of advantages for audiences that are out there. There are always going to be people who are going to want to sit there and look at their phone while they're watching a movie. There's always going to be people who are going to want to kick the, the, the seat in front of them or you get those those groups where there'll be like six people that come into the theater and they always have two friends who think they're to entertain the group by making comments and jokes all the time, right? And so those people could go to a drive-in. Drive-ins could become the alternative to... Roll up the windows just to... Or I guess now you probably tune it in on the radio, don't you, stereo? What I've seen, a lot of the the images that I've seen, it seems like they're still using the old uh, technology. So Either um, way... You've got the noisy people mostly in an enclosed space. There you go. That's yeah, cool. totally. Yeah, I mean, they have these. They still have the old audio speakers, I guess, you have to clip onto your car door. But you could. There's no reason why you couldn't set up some sort of streaming service where people could listen to the audio through the speakers in their car. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, there is, I think, a market for creating a theater experience where people can go off and be very social yeah. is the polite way of, of putting that. Where if you want to, you could put a hashtag on the bottom of the screen of the movie, and everybody could tweet about what the that the fact that they're watching the movie in real time. Uh, maybe that's a market that hasn't been tapped. Maybe you know somebody has to come in and sort of help invest and help those mom and pop operations get with the times and sort of take their business into the future. Yeah, that's cool. I I would go. I would go for something like that. Something that's a bit more social, a different way of seeing a movie. I mean, I I love seeing movies on the big screen. As you can imagine, I have a lot of DVDs and Blu-rays and that sort of thing. And I find that I, I don't really watch them that often. I'll go back and um, you know check out something at Halloween. I always pull out my you know Universal Horror DVDs and have a look at them that sort of thing. But I don't spend a great deal of time watching things on DVD. Um, and, and because I prefer the big screen experience, I prefer seeing things in a movie. Now, you know, I don't spend a lot of time watching DVDs, but I go to the movie six or seven times a week. So it's a, that's, you know, it's a little different. Um, but uh, it, it is a different, uh, it's a different thing. I would like a, a, a new way 
I've seen movies, and they drive in, you know, sort of everything that's old is new again. You know, give me a give me a different way of using the drive-in, and I'll take you up on it. Yeah, well, I, I never even thought about the food aspect because that I think has to be a big appeal. A lot of people are looking for uh, cafes and places where they can go and they can get strawberry cream cheese filled French toast. Yeah. If you could compete against the inner city theaters by offering that kind of an experience, then I think yeah. yes, there is a role for drive-ins to keep going for the next two, three decades. Yeah, yeah. Although now, odd that Honda is leading the charge on this. Uh, and funny that their campaign on this is that it's it, they're looking to save an American tradition. So I think part of this for them is trying to align themselves as being uh, a company with American interests at heart. Right, right. Yeah, something because what's more all-American than drive-ins except uh, baseball and apple pie? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe so. Well, I'm choosing not to be cynical about it, so. <laughs> well, I, you know, at the end of the day, I think the, 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 the results, the interest, what they're, they're going to accomplish, I think, is good. Right. Now, one of the movies that I would not go see uh, at the drive-in is Jobs. I'm just going to touch on this briefly. Uh, this is Ashton Kutcher. Uh, playing uh, Steve Jobs. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, watching this movie, and it's, it's a standard of biopic as it gets. We meet him. He's in university. He's a free spirit. Uh, he starts Apple in his parents' garage. He brings on Wozniak. They've got a few other friends that help. And, you know, it goes on to the creation of Apple to his rise as CEO, to his banishment, and then comes back, and you know, it's it's pretty, you know, you know, step by step, and it really reminded me that remarkable movies are rarely ever made about remarkable people. You know, these these biopics always seem to be fairly standard, and and I just wondered, like, when you have someone who was as visionary and remarkable, maybe not a nice man entirely. But, you know, hey, whatever, I'm using, I've got a ton of his equipment sitting in front of me. Uh, you know, he, he really changed the way that we interact with technology. and It has changed the world in so many ways. And I, I think that it's uh, just a shame that such a standard movie would be made about this. And, and part of it, I think, is that it's hard to take a sitcom star like Ashton Kutcher, who's probably a nice fellow, but isn't. it's hard to take him seriously playing a visionary. And there's... Something that's so difficult, uh, uh, movies about painters tend to be about the creative process. And it's really hard to, or in writers too, it's really hard to nail that creative process. Few movies have gotten it right. Pollock, about the great painter uh, yeah. Jackson Pollock with Ed Harris, does a pretty good job of, of kind of making you a little bit, at least understand what, we, what went into making those amazing splatter paintings that he made. Uh, this movie, though, it seems that Steve Jobs finds inspiration everywhere. You know, people like you and me don't find inspiration in the same places that he does. He finds it everywhere. And when he finds it, his eyes glaze over, and he just stares off into space. And it happens so often in the movie, and this is the, the joke I wrote in my review, is that I began to wonder if Ashton Kutcher wasn't watching a better, more interesting movie just slightly off screen somewhere than the one he was actually appearing in. Because uh, I just felt that there had to be a better way of showing this guy getting lost, lost in thought than just to be so literal about it. And it just was, to me, emblematic of how kind of lazy the movie is. Yeah, the, I... 
I haven't seen it. I don't have plans to go and see it. Uh, I saw the the first clips that went online, and to me they were so appalling. I thought, oh, it's like really bad theater, you know. Right. And uh, you have people that whole description you just did of looking off into the distance is such a, a, a typical bad theater way of trying to express inspiration, intelligence, you know. Oh, uh, yeah. No, I'm not a interested. Bit, a little bit painful. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, I, I can't recommend it. There's, there's a, a, apparently another movie coming out soon that you might want to check out um, uh, of his or, or about him. Um, I did want to, uh, you know, jumping around a little bit from Jobs. I just wanted to mention uh, Elmore Leonard. Yes. Elmore Leonard passed away this morning. Uh, he was, of course, the writer of, you know, I don't know how many books. Uh, Get Punch, like Get Shorty. Yeah, Kill Shot, um, you know, goes on and on. Cuba Libre, uh, which went on to become Jackie Brown. Uh, it, it goes on and on and on. One, uh, one of the great writers of dialogue. Uh, this photograph that's up here on the screen now uh, comes from an event that I hosted with him at Harborfront uh, here in Toronto um, in 2004. I interviewed him on stage for an hour and a half or so, and then uh, this was taken at a little reception afterwards. And uh, he was, I was in awe of being uh, next to this guy. And he, he treated writing like a profession. He got up in the morning and wrote from a certain hour just until noon. Then he would put his pen, because he always wrote in longhand, he would put his pen down, he would have his lunch, and then he would go back and write till a certain, you know. And, and he, he was prolific right up until the end of his life. And uh, and sort of an inspiration to people who want to be writers. So Elmer Leonard died uh, today of a stroke uh, very early this morning, and I just wanted to mention mention him and uh, acknowledge that. Yeah, no, I, I mean it's not just his impact on on books, but so many movies. I mean, yeah, you know, uh, lots of great writers. Stephen King, for example, have had lots of of books or movies made based on their books. Um, Elmore Leonard. I mean, many of the movies that were made on his stuff—they're good. They're they're worth watching. They're, they're yeah, well, and, and not just crime dramas, but like Three Ten to Yuma, uh, mm -hmm. westerns. He wrote a lot of westerns too, so he was uh, prolific and varied in his writing. And his books had been translated into languages, obviously, all over the world. They were big sellers all over the place. And I remember, I just loved this backstage uh, at this at this Harborfront event. We went backstage, and there were piles of books, as there often are at these authors' events, for him to sign. <laughs> and one of the piles of books um, was foreign language versions of his, some of his older novels, and they were from a collector who, who you know, had said, "Would you sign these?" And he, he agreed to. But I think it was uh, Rum Punch, the 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 book called Rum Punch. Um, that uh, in its, I'm thinking, I'm guessing, uh, Spanish. Retitling was Cocktail Explosivo, which I always thought was really awesome. Oh, that's fantastic. Cocktail Explosivo. Cool. Well, I, I guess that brings us to the end of uh, our 51st episode. Yes. Uh, we will be back soon to speak of more things. I am uh, about to fall into the abyss of screenings for the Toronto International Film Festival. Uh, so my uh, my uh, appearances may be sporadic, but I'm thinking about you people all the time. <laughs> well, we'll have to do a, a special just on the TIFF like we did last year. You can talk Absolutely. about a lot of the – it looks like it's going to be a good year. 
It does look like it's going to be a good year. Uh, you know, I'm just interested. Uh, Teller of Penn and Teller has a movie here. Yeah. Come on. And so uh, I'm excited about there. There's just some little oddball things that I'm just really excited to see. So uh, next time we'll tell you all about all the stuff that I've had a chance to see. Cool. Okay. Can't wait. Uh, by all means, let us know. Uh, have you had any drive-in experiences that you'd like to share? You can go to our website, heyallyouzombies.com, and let us know what you're thinking. See you, folks. <laughs>